0: Hey guys, Pastor Jeremy here. I just wanted to take a minute and welcome you and thank you for joining us here. We're so excited you're able to join us online and we are thankful we can offer this opportunity. My prayer for you is that you are encouraged and challenged during your time with us as we worship the Lord together. We are so glad you're here with us and I hope you come ready to encounter God through His Word. Blessings.
1: I'm reading to you today from 1 Thessalonians 1. 1 through 10 Paul Silvanus Timothy to the church of Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ grace to you and peace We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor and love And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And you received the word in as much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So that we need not say anything, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven who He raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come.
0: Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word this morning. And God, we thank you. Lord, may we never get over the truth that we just sang. That when we think of you, your son not sparing, that you sent him to die, we should scarcely be able to take it in. That on the cross our burdens gladly bearing, that he bled and died to take away our sin. God, I pray this morning that we would be moved by you through your word. We would be changed. May we not resist your leading, but may we submit to your leadership and guidance through your word. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So over the next several weeks, as you've heard, we're going to be going through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And I won't do this every week, but just by way of introduction to the book itself. uh, 1 Thessalonians, the reason we're looking through it, or the reason we're calling this series The Ideal Church, uh, is because... If you, if you read the New Testament, specifically the, the, the epistles of Paul, and not the ones necessarily written to Timothy or Titus or Philemon, but the ones written to the churches. So, uh, the 1st uh, and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, so on. When you look at those, um, those epistles, what you find is that each one of them, or all, almost all of them, when Paul is writing to them, yes, of course, he encourages them and he exhorts them. But in all of them, they, he also has to rebuke them for something. He has to tell them something. In fact, uh, for the, maybe the most uh, commonly known example, in in Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes a letter to them because uh, apparently unbeknownst to them, he has to write a letter to them to tell them that it's wrong that they're allowing a man to have fellowship in the church and to serve in the church and to be a part of the church when he is sleeping with his stepmother. So he writes to tell them it's wrong. And he tells them, you should not have anybody like that among you. You need to put him out and and perform church discipline on him and and then share the gospel with him and call him to repentance. Then he writes 2 Corinthians. And when he writes 2 Corinthians, he has to tell them, hey, he repented of his sin. you got to let him back in the church now. You can't keep him out because they were keeping him out. So each one of these letters he's having to write, and that's among other things uh, for the Corinthians specifically, he has to write these things to rebuke them. So all of the epistles have something like that, except Thessalonians, specifically 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes to them, and yes, he encourages them, yes, he exhorts them, and he does talk to them a little bit about something they don't understand, but he does not come out and correct them about anything. In fact, in the passage that was just read by Brother Ernie, in that passage he says, and you became examples, you became a model, you became an ideal church, And you became that model for all of the Christians in Macedonia and Achaia. So when we look at this passage, when we look at 1 Thessalonians throughout these next several weeks, that's what we have to understand. That's the reason that I'm putting forth the Thessalonians. It's not that they were perfect. It's not that they never did anything wrong. It's just simply that there was at least nothing major to the point that Paul felt the need to even address it. And so when we look at this passage, what we find is the apostle. Now, the apostle Paul is writing this letter... Um, and he's writing this letter from Corinth. That's important uh, later on in this passage. But the Apostle Paul is on the, the back end of his second missionary journey that he's taking. And he's writing uh, this, this epistle to the Thessalonians uh, to, to encourage them and to exhort them and to teach them. And he's doing so from Corinth. He's with, uh, he's with Silvanus, or uh, you, your translation might have it, but it's also his other name. It's Silas. So, so he's with Silvanus, and he's also with Timothy. And so as he writes this book, that's what the Apostle Paul is doing. And we'll get more into background and stuff like that later as we go through the book. But that's, suffice it to say, that's the the, the general background of 1 Thessalonians. So now as we go into the sermon. In 1865... Abraham Lincoln was the president of the United States and you're probably familiar with the story uh, at least this, the first portion of it maybe uh, Abraham Lincoln is sitting in a theater watching a performance and a man named John Wilkes Booth sneaks into uh, the theater and shoots him in his private box, he shoots him in the back of the head of course um, Lincoln ultimately succumbs to this injury and passes away and when, when Booth flees the scene as he was fleeing somehow some way, he broke his leg And as he broke his leg, his co-conspirators took him to a doctor in the area, took him in to have his leg taken care of. And as he was taken in to have his leg taken care of, uh, the doctor mended his leg, got him at least where it was stable and and fixed back the best that he could. And then they put Booth on a horse and Booth took off. Well, a little bit later, uh, Booth and his co-conspirators were found and arrested and the doctor was actually arrested along with them. They were all put on trial, plenty of evidence uh, for, for many of them. and They were putting forth the evidence that, uh, that these men had conspired to assassinate the President of the United States. Then this, course, went on for a long time. It wasn't a short trial, but, but this, this, the, all of this went on for quite some time. And as it went on and on, eventually they could prove that all of them were involved and they but what they proved for the doctor was that he had mended booth's leg that's what they proved and primarily because he said when they said did you mend booth's leg he said yes so that's how they knew that he had done it so he he mended booth's leg and because of this through this long uh, he was in confinement through this long time period and everything else um, they couldn't really ever come up with evidence to prove that he had conspired with the others all they could prove really was that he had mended his leg and so over the course of time eventually they they, they just could not come up with the evidence for it and he was ultimately pardoned um, because there was just not enough evidence to continue to hold him uh, in conspiracy now, the truth is, is he was held for some time. Of course, he wasn't practicing and things like that. But, but in the end, ultimately, being even sort of involved with this ruined his life. It ruined his practice. It ruined his career. It ruined his name. See, and, and, and to be honest, it ruined his name because to this day in modern parlance, we use his name to refer to someone who does something, or at the very least is accused of something, and then ultimately their reputation is destroyed. See, the doctor who was accused was Dr. Samuel Mudd with two Ds. And that is where we get the term, his name is Mudd. That's, that's where we get it. So when someone's reputation is destroyed, we say, oh man, he was ruined. His name is Mudd now. We we always think it means like dirt with some water in it. But it's actually after this guy, Mudd, Samuel Mudd, whose reputation was destroyed. So the question this morning, when we think about this, regardless of what he had done, regardless of anything, the truth is, to this day, he is simply known as one of the possible co-conspirators in the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. So when we think about this story, this is how he's remembered. So the question I have is, how do you want to be remembered? How do you want people to think? Now, I don't mean how do you individually want to be remembered. We're going to talk about why in a minute. I mean, how do you want to be remembered as a church? How do we want to be remembered here at Eastwood? And when we're remembered as people, when we're... Thought of as Christ's church, if we are going to be remembered for the right things, then we must live a life worthy of thanksgiving. We must live a life worthy of thanksgiving. Now, here's the question I have this morning. If the Apostle Paul showed up this morning, and he sat right there, and he was a part of our fellowship, and he was a part of our worship, and he was listening to the sermon, which... Probably wouldn't happen because I would let him up here. There's no way I would preach in front of the Apostle Paul. So, um, but he would sit there. He would experience that. He'd walk the halls. He would go to different fellowships. He would meet people. He would talk to everyone. And then at the end of all of it, I would hand him a piece of paper and a pen. And he would write about Eastwood Baptist Church. Now, when the Apostle takes pen to paper, how is he going to start the letter? Is he going to start the letter like he did in first Corinthians when he says it grieves me to have to write this to you or would he begin the letter the way he does to the Thessalonians I give thanks to my God always in every remembrance of you how would he begin that letter when we think about the question obviously we should desire the latter And if we're going to experience this same kind of thanksgiving, then we should be a people remembered for a distinctly Christian character. A distinctly Christian character. Now if you look at verse 1, as Brother Ernie read just a minute ago, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church and Thessal- to the Thessalonians. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. And now there is there is obviously something in there. And Paul is referring to both grace and peace. And that only comes through God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But I will say also that generally speaking for Paul. This is a standard introduction. At this point. So, so this is a standard introduction. This is essentially him saying dear so and so. So this is how he starts. But then in verse 2. He says, we give thanks to God. We give thanks to God. So when we hear this, we hear, we give thanks. But in, in, so it's three words in English, but in, but in Greek, it's one word. And this one word drives all of the rest of the passage. So all of the rest of, uh, through verse 10. We give thanks. And he tells them, we give thanks two way, in two ways. We give thanks remembering and we give thanks knowing and we'll look at what those are in a second so we give thanks remembering and we give thanks knowing and he says we we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers so Paul is so thankful Paul is so grateful for who they are and what they have done that he says basically every time I pray I thank God for you now little side note. Uh, Pastor Ed and I were talking the other day about this, and I think it's important. It's important to note that in the New Testament, specifically in the epistles, throughout all of the epistles, uh, you'll hear maybe interchangeably I'll use the word, but uh, but there are things called imperatives, which are commands. Uh, They're commands that are given. You shall do this. You should not do this. So there are commands. Love one another. Those kind of things. And in those commands... All of those commands are, we read it. Now, it, there's two reasons that I think we read it this way. The first one is because as uh, believers in this day and age, we have an overrealized sense of individualism. So when we read this, we read you, we think me. That's why when we read passages, we think, how does this affect me? What do I think about this? So, so that's the first thing. The second one is in English, if I'm talking about an individual and I say you, or I'm talking about a group of people and I say you, There's no way to know the difference except for context. I mean, in the South, we kind of fix that, right? Um, Because if I'm talking about you individually, I call you you. But if I'm talking about all of us, I say y'all. So I might switch back and forth. But but over 95% of the imperatives given in the New Testament are not given to you individually. They're given to y'all as a church. That's why the point of this book, the, the, re, the point of this sermon series is about the model or the, the ideal church. Not just in Now, of course, if you're going to be a church that loves, then obviously you have to be an individual that loves. But that's why these applications and the things that I say are going to apply to the church as a whole. Not just you and I individually. Because we are not a group of individuals. We are one in Christ. And so it's important. So Paul says, I, I, I thank my God always, constantly making mention of y'all in my prayers. And then he says he does so remembering, remembering. And he, he remembers very specific characteristics about them, three of them in fact. He remembers their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So those are the three things he remembers, work of faith... Labor of love, steadfastness of hope. And I want to go through those. The first one is, he says, remembering your work of faith. Now, the way that that is phrased in the original language can also be translated and gives a little more force to it. It's not just your work of faith, but it's literally your faith that works. It's your faith that works. So he says, the first thing I remember is your faith that works. The Apostle Paul is saying, I remember that you have a faith That results in action. You didn't just say you believe, but you actually did something about it and it is evident in your life. That's what he's saying when he says, I remember your faith that works. And the second one is, your love, all three of them are this way, your love that labors. or Actually, even more specifically, your love that toils to the point of exhaustion. That's what that word labor means. So you you toils to the point of exhaustion. Hey, you ever been tired before? I guess nobody's ever been tired before you. you Oh, come on. We're here this morning. You ever been tired before? Okay, okay. So I remember, I mean, I've been tired multiple times, but I remember the first time in my life that I was legitimately exhausted. I mean, I always thought I was tired. I'm so tired. But this time I was for real tired. So, in my family, there is, you know, a lot of families have different games, different things they play. In my family, there is a game that we play. My children know how to play it. There's a game we play. In the Rogers family, you don't get to bear the name of Rogers and not know how to play Canasta. Okay, we've played Canasta my whole life. And in my family, there's a specific thing. My grandparents used to come over, and both of my, my my nanny and papa are now have gone on to be with the Lord. But but they were they would come over, and everybody, my mom and dad, and my nanny and papa would be like, oh gosh, it's 7.30. It's time to go to bed. Oh, it's time to go to bed. And I'm thinking, what are y'all tired? Summer? Time to go to bed, 7 30. And then someone would utter these words Hey, y'all want to play cards? Right? So then all of a sudden, these people who couldn't stay up past 7.30 are up at 3 o'clock in the morning <laughs> playing canasta. I mean, I mean, hours and hours and hours of playing canasta. And, and in there, it was always the same. My dad and my nanny and my mom and my pawpaw, they, they were partners. And that was the way it was for 40 years. And there were some other rules. My kids know these rules. In my family, when the adults get together and we're playing... You can keep score when you are 15 years old. You can keep score when you are 16 and when you are 17. You are not allowed to play cards with the adults until you are 18 years old for one very clear reason. You don't know how to play well enough. You play too slow and you will make us lose. So that's why you don't get to play. But I'm also, on, on my, my dad's side of the family, I'm not the oldest grandson, but I am the oldest grandson, my dad's the only son, so I'm the oldest grandson who bears my grandfather's name. In fact, we share a middle name, my, brother, my brother's middle name is, is my grandfather's first name, Micah's middle name is my grandfather's first name, Jeremiah's middle name is my middle name and my grandfather's middle name and my dad's middle name. So, so the point is, we all share a name. And so my grandmother would constantly try to bend the rules for me. Baby, you know, um, guys, I mean, he's, you know, he's old enough. He can play. And my grandfather my dad just, no, it's not happening. So I was there and I was taking score and, and I uttered words that I have regretted since that day. I sat down, I'm sitting there and I, well, nobody responded. So I did it again. And my dad said, what's up? And then I uttered words that my kids know not to utter as well. I'm bored. So my dad said, oh, that's great. Because the grass is looking a little high. And we live on an acre and a half. Okay, It's 110 degrees in June in southeast Texas. 90% humidity mosquitoes everywhere and he says i need you to mow the lawn and i said well dad i can't mow the lawn because i'm 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 15 16 i can't mow the lawn the lawnmower's broken he's the riding lawnmower is broken he goes i got you covered i bought you a self-propelled lawnmower (laughs) what i haven't heard of this so we go outside then he said Here's your self-propelled lawnmower. My grandfather starts laughing because it's a regular lawnmower. He said, I said, Dad, that's a regular lawnmower. He said, well, it's self-propelled because it's propelled by yourself. <laughs> ah, dad joke, right? They just, he thought that was hilarious. They go back in, keep playing cards. I'm out there mowing, acre and a half with a push mower, okay? It took me like three and a half hours to mow all this, and I finally get done I put the mower up I go inside I sit down I'm covered in dirt sweat from head to toe I'm exhausted I mean I'm so tired I can't even think straight my grandfather never looks up from his cards and he says still bored son? and one I knew to not utter anything smart alec but two I couldn't get up enough energy to even say anything. I was so tired. Then my dad says, you want to play cards? To me. So I played cards for three hours, but I was really tired, <laughs> exhausted, nothing left in the tank. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. That's what Paul means when he says your labor of love or your love that labors. It's a love that works so hard at loving other people that you literally have nothing left at the end of the day. Nothing. So what does that look like? I don't know if you're aware of this. But sometimes in church there are people who are difficult to love. It's also very quiet for the most part because you're afraid to say anything. You might be sitting next to the person that you think is difficult to love. And if you think, no, they're not difficult to love, you might be the person that's difficult to love. In fact, in the office, sometimes uh, we joke around, we use a term for people, it's L-E-G-R, it means a little extra grace required. There are people sometimes that are difficult to love. There are people that are easy to love. It is not hard to love them at all. They just, it's just simple. They're, they're great. You have so much in common. They're wonderful people. You just love them so much. And then there are people, you see them coming and you've got you to muster some effort to really love them. And you say, when do you end? When you have nothing left. That's what he said. First, I remember your faith that works. It doesn't just sit still. It doesn't just sit, sour, stagnate, and then die. It's, It's the kind of faith that works. But it's also the kind of love that expends itself to the point that there is nothing left. You have a faith that works, a love that labors, and then a steadfastness of hope, or a hope that is steadfast in our Lord Jesus Christ. Literally, it's a hope that is able to bear up under an extreme weight or trial. what it means. So it's a hope that's able to do that. It's either distinctly Christian characteristics. See, what you believe... There are a lot of people who could say, I believe this, but then they don't do it. But in order to be a believer in Jesus Christ, your belief has to actually translate into what you do. It's faith and works together. They work together. Works is a product of your faith. So your, your faith works but then, distinctly Christian, your love labors. See, the world says that I love you until it's too hard and then I give up. But it, as a believer in Jesus Christ, your love labors and then your hope is steadfast. It means regardless of what happens in this world and regardless of what happens in your life, or the ups and downs and the turns and the, and the difficult times, everything, your hope remains the same. It is steadfast, immovable, always working. So he says you have a hope that's steadfast. Now it's also important to note, we say our hope. So we use the term hope a lot of times, and, and this word hope that we use, we'll say things like, I, you know, I've got a doctor's appointment on the other side of town, it's 9.30, I need to be there by 10, I hope I get there in time. Well if you have to go down Scottsville Road, give up, it's not happening. But you say I hope... I get there in time. What we mean when we say hope a lot of or most of the time is we mean something that we desire to see happen, but there's a really good chance it may not. That's what we mean. I hope this happens. I hope I win. Well, I I have a, a, a good chance, but there's also a possibility it could not happen. Except in the New Testament, the word hope is used repeatedly, and when it is used, it uses it's used to describe not that, not wishful thinking. But a confident expectation, that's what hope is in the New Testament, a confident expectation. It means to believe in something that has not occurred yet, so much so that it is as if it has already happened. That's what hope is in the New Testament. So when you hope in Jesus Christ, that's everything he can do for you. The fact that he has saved you now and will save you ultimately. And he will bring you to heaven and you will live with him forever. That hope that you have in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. It's not a, that would be a really great thing, but there's a possibility it might not happen. He says when you walk in hope in the New Testament, you walk in a confident expectation. I'm not with Jesus yet, but it's as if I'm already there. That's what Paul means when he says, you and I have already been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. It's as if it has already occurred. So the three things that Paul remembers about the Thessalonian church when he prays and makes mention of them is their faith that works, their love that labors, and their hope that is steadfast in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about that, when I hear those words, I say it's... I I ask myself the question for myself, but I ask myself the question for us as a body of believers, is that how we would be remembered? They were known as a people of active faith. They were known as a people with a laboring love, and they were known as a people with an unshakable hope in Jesus. So, we should be a people who are remembered for a certain character, but also people who are remembered for this character, but also we should be those who are known for something. We should be a people known by a Christ-centered reputation. So not only are we, uh, t- should we be remembered as a people uh, of a... Certain character, but we should also be known as a people of a Christ centered reputation. Look what he says here. So remember, I said it's we give thanks remembering, and so this is the outline essentially we give thanks remembering, we give thanks knowing. Okay, so he's about to tell them what he knows for certain. We give thanks knowing, verse 4 For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, that you are his. That you belong to him, that you have been born again. We know this, and how do we know it? Because, verse 5, our gospel came to you not only in word, but he gives three things. Not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. So this is how we know that you are born again, that you are believers, that you belong to God. Is because when our word, when the gospel came to you, it did not come in word only. There was something that happened in your life. So, what he tells them is the first way, or the first way we give thanks knowing, uh, knowing what you have been and who you are, knowing how you received the gospel. That's what he's describing how they received the gospel, not just in word, but what happened. Well, they received it in power. That means, You used to be these people over here, weak, uh, no faith, lacking in strength spiritually. But now you are filled with power. That's evident. The second one, you used to be people who were driven by your own desires, your own wants, your own determinations. And yet now you are filled with the Holy Spirit and guided by him and his decisions and desire for your life. But then the third thing is with full conviction or full assurance. See, those who you used to be shakeable, you used to doubt, you used to not be sure about what would happen to you and what would happen to you eternally and what you thought spiritually. But now you are certain in the Lord. So what Paul is saying is, we do this knowing that you are his, and the reason you are his is because there is power where there used to be weakness, there is the spirit where there used to be the flesh, and there is full assurance where there used to be doubt. That's how we know that you are his. That's an amazing truth. He's saying, there are things about you that are now evident to the world. They're evident to the people who meet you. That's the first thing, knowing that you are his because of these things. The second one... So he says we know this because of how you received the gospel. But then he repeats it again. We know this because of how you received the gospel. What does he say? In verse 6, and you became or he says in verse 5, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and the Lord. So, we know that you are his because of how you received the gospel. We know that you are His, because you became imitators. We know that the Gospels come to you in power because you became imitators of us and the Lord. And then he says something interesting. And you became imitators of us and the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. So Paul says, we know this is true about you. We give thanks to God knowing this because you became imitators. All of you, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Because you received the gospel in much affliction. This is, again, distinctly Christian. That they received the very thing that caused them the trial. They were experiencing difficulty because when they believed the gospel, that's where the trial and difficulty came. And yet, they still received it. Why is that imitation of Paul? Well, it's imitation of Paul because regardless of what happened to Paul in his life, he stood firm. In the midst of suffering, he stood firm in the hardship. He never faltered or walked away from his faith. So he, he stood in that. So well, how, do, how, is, how did they become imitators of Jesus? Well, Jesus, being the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, he went to the cross for you and for me. He suffered even in the midst of all these things. So But why is it distinctly Christian? Because suffering, hear me, suffering is not distinctly Christian. Everybody in the world deals with difficulties and hardship. Suffering is not distinctly Christian. It's the second part of the phrase that I left out that's distinctly Christian. He said, you receive the gospel, the word, in much affliction, but what? With the joy of the Holy Spirit. So the distinctly Christian part is that you suffer because of the gospel, and yet you're filled with joy. You're filled with joy. Why? Because there's nothing on this earth. That can happen to you that shakes, changes, or moves your salvation in Jesus Christ. And because of that, even though you receive the gospel in much affliction, you can have joy. Because happiness is dependent on outward circumstances. But joy is a fruit of the spirit. It's because of the one living within you, not the things happening on the outside. So because of that, Paul says, knowing That these are true of you, that it's evident that you've come to faith in Christ because of the power and the Holy Spirit and the assurance in your life, but also knowing you became imitators of us because you received the gospel in much suffering, much affliction, and yet you were filled with joy. Without going on too far of a tangent, I will say this, that it doesn't matter whether somebody believes they are one or they think they're not, but they still are. This is completely contrary, hear me, completely contrary to anyone who falls into the camp of a health and wealth prosperity preacher it's completely contrary why because it is distinctly Christian to suffer and yet walk in joy but I can't go any further on that although I want to so he knows this because of how they receive the gospel power Holy Spirit full conviction how they received the gospel, became, becoming imitators of, of, of suffering. And even in the midst of suffering, they have joy. But then what's the third one? The first two are how they received the gospel. The third one is how they lived and ministered the gospel. That's the third thing that they know. Look, in verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers. There's the example, ideal, model. You became the example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So Macedonia and Achaia, really quickly, Greece was basically understood in two different provinces. Okay, so Macedonia was the north, Achaia was the south. That was, that was the way the whole country was broken up into. The chief city in the north, in Macedonia, was Thessalonica. Okay, the chief city in the south, Achaia, was Corinth. So Paul is in the chief city of the south, writing to them who were in the chief city of the north... And he says that you became examples to the entire country. That's what he's saying. To all of Greece. When he says Macedonia and Achaia, he's covering the entire country. So he says, in all of Greece, you became examples to all the believers. Now why? Why are they examples? Because look what he says. For not only, in verse 8, has the word of the Lord sounded forth, literally trumpeted forth from you, like a herald blasting a trumpet. That's the gospel. It's constantly going out. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of uh, reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. So what is Paul saying? Paul says, we know this. And we remember, we remember you before the Lord because we know that you are His because of power, uh, because of the power in your life, the Holy Spirit and full assurance. We know this because you became imitators of us and the Lord, receiving the gospel in much affliction, but with full joy. So we know that. but then the third one, is that we know this because once you received the gospel, it didn't just sit with you. It went out. It started going out everywhere to the point that it didn't just go to the neighborhoods surrounding where they met. It went to the entire country. How much? So much so that the Apostle Paul says, when we go places. Now remember, where is he at? He's in Corinth. In the southern region of the country. He says, when we go places. He, he means Corinth and the surrounding areas. But when we go there... And we begin to witness to them and share the gospel with them. We can't say anything because they look at us when we come in and say, oh, we're already believers. Yeah, have you heard about those guys up in Thessalonica? Some apostles went to them, shared the gospel with them. Their lives were irreparably changed forever. They turned from idols to serve the living and true God. They trust and wait for Jesus in hope that he will come and deliver them. They do all those things. Paul, have you ever heard of some apostles going to the Thessalonians? Paul says, well, yeah, that was me. But what does he say? He says, so much so that we don't don't have to say anything. (laughs) He shows up and goes, oh, the Thessalonians have already been here. Let's move on. Why? Because they were already making a gospel impact everywhere they went. There were people going everywhere and sharing the message of the Thessalonians. And what were they sharing? They were sharing a powerful testimony that they had turned from idols to serve the living and true God. This is a powerful testimony. But then also a powerful gospel. That they had been changed forever and that they hoped in the returning. What does it say? They hoped in the returning to wait for his son from heaven, verse 10, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. A powerful testimony and a powerful gospel message. That's how he knew. Because the gospel came to them in power and then the gospel went out from them in power. That's how we knew. They were a powerhouse. That's what they were. There was, there was power coming in through the gospel. There was power going out from the gospel to everyone else around them. They had kingdom impact. Do we want to be known as that kind of people? Do we want to be known as that kind of church? People, say, well, people will say, oh man, you know what? I want to plant a church in such and such area. And they say, oh great, well here's what we need to do. We need to send that church planter to Eastwood for a year so they can learn how church is supposed to be done. Because that's what they, the Thessalonians, he said, we got there, they already knew it. They already understood exactly how it's supposed to be done. Because you had already been here. Do we want to be that kind of church? Now there are those who are here this morning or you're watching online and the truth is, is it talks about Jesus coming And waiting for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And here's the thing. He said that they had a love or a a faith that worked. They had a, a love that labored. And they had a hope that was steadfast. But you have no hope this morning. You're trusting in yourself. You're trusting in other things. And those things or you yourself cannot deliver you from the wrath that is to come. Only Jesus is your hope both in this life and in the next. And so the the truth is today, turn from your sin. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Trust him with your life and then wait for his returning. And be filled with the spirit and power and full assurance. And live your life with with your faith working itself out. Your love laboring to the point of exhaustion. And you walk in a hope, a confident expectation in Jesus Christ. But then church, very simply, this is the question I have this morning. How do we want to be remembered? My prayer for us, my prayer for our church is that we would have a gospel impact in such a way that it resonates forth, not just now and not just in the area, but resonates forth for generations. That they look back at Eastwood Baptist Church and said, man, that's a group of people whose faith didn't just sit in the pew, it worked. That's a group of people who didn't just say they loved one another, but their love labored to the point of exhaustion. And that's a group of people who didn't just say they believed in Jesus like it was wishful thinking, but they had a confident expectation that Jesus Christ was their Savior. And either they were going to die and go be with Him, or He was going to return and take them home. They had that kind of faith. And then they lived it out. They trumpeted the gospel forth in every area so that there was no need to go in the immediate neighborhood. People got there and said, oh, I'm sorry, Eastwood's already been here. Oh, I'm sorry, Eastwood's already been here. You know about Jesus? Oh, yeah, Eastwood already told me. You got a church home? Yeah, Eastwood is my church home. Is that the kind of church we want to be? Oh, God, make us that kind of church. We are so grateful you've spent the last several minutes with us, and I hope you were encouraged in your walk with Jesus Christ. If you're a member of another church, I pray that this experience would be supplemental to your fellowship and service in your local body. If you're not currently connected to a local church and you live in the Bowling Green area, we would love to welcome you in person at Eastwood at one of our campuses on Sunday at 9.30 or 11. You can find all the information you need on our website, www.eastwoodbc.org. Or you can contact us to get answers to your questions. Again, I pray you were encouraged during your time with us. May you be richly blessed in Christ.